Hi, Vetfolio Voice listeners. Thanks for joining me for this special edition podcast in conjunction with NAVC's Grassroots Advocacy Initiative, Embrace. Now, before we begin, I want to give you guys an important disclaimer. Please note that this episode covers the topics of domestic violence and violence to animals and may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences. Please take care while listening. For this special edition episode, we're discussing domestic violence and how we can better protect pets and their owners. Before we get started, I want to highlight important state legislation that passed during Kentucky's 2022 legislative session and was signed into law by Kentucky's governor. House Bill 319 updates many of Kentucky's domestic violence laws so that judges can award a pet to the victim of domestic violence rather than the abuser in cases where violence or threatened violence against a pet was used for coercion or control. Unfortunately, abusers in domestic violence situations often manipulate their victims through real or threatened violence against a beloved pet. And the hope is this law will ensure pets are placed in safe environments and victims of abuse no longer have to choose between their safety and the safety of their pets. Visit navc.com embrace to take action and support similar legislation in your state. We were fortunate to have some amazing guests for this episode who are often on the front lines of these cases and willing to share their insights and expertise in the hopes that all of us can continue to help both human and animal survivors of domestic violence. Dr. Melinda Merck is the owner of Veterinary Forensics Consulting in Austin, Texas. Her background includes private practice, shelter medicine, and disaster response. She provides expert case consultations and testimony, and Dr. Merck provides training for veterinary, attorney, and law enforcement professionals nationally and internationally on the use of veterinary forensics in the investigation and prosecution of animal cruelty cases and the link to crime against humans. Dr. Merck is the editing and contributing author of the textbook Veterinary Forensics, Animal Cruelty Investigation, Second Edition, and a contributing author of other textbooks on the subject of veterinary forensics and animal cruelty investigations, including Shelter Medicine for Veterinarians and Staff. Locally, Dr. Merck volunteers with SAFE, the Austin Shelter for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Survivors. We were also lucky enough to be joined by Nicole Forsyth, Since 2006, Nicole Forsyth has served as president and CEO of Red Rover, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization that brings animals out of crisis and strengthens the bonds between people and their pets. To better reflect its work, she led the organization through a major rebranding effort in 2011, which successfully laid the groundwork for current growth initiatives. Nicole's combined experience in nonprofit management, scientific research, education, and hands-on animal care has developed the strategic focus of the organization, seeking positive, innovative solutions to alleviate suffering, prevent animal abuse, and create a more compassionate society for all. Committed to applying research and data to her work, she holds a Master's of Science degree in Animal Biology and Welfare from the University of California, Davis, She also holds a master's degree in communication from the University of Maine and a bachelor's degree in English and education from the University of Colorado. Nicole previously worked in fund development for the Placer SPCA in Roseville, California, and was the development director for a habitat conservation organization. She's worked as a classroom teacher to middle and at-risk high school students as well. They were both amazing guests and we were so happy to have them. Let's go ahead and hear what they have to say. 
So I'm joined by Dr. Melinda Merck. She literally wrote the book on veterinary forensics. And I know this, Dr. Merck, because I took your class when I was in my master's degree at the University of Florida and was just so impressed with all the valuable input you had to offer. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what veterinary forensics is and the role that it plays in criminal investigations? Sure. Veterinary forensics refers to applying veterinary science, medical knowledge, and experience in answering questions in a legal arena is what it really means. So those can be civil cases, criminal cases. It can be cases against malpractice even. So that's what it really entails. The veterinarian's role is to be part of that team that is investigating those cases and applying that knowledge, explaining their findings and educating all parties involved. And deadly injuries to pets are often the result of domestic violence. So I'm guessing that's something that comes up very frequently when you're discussing these cases. Yeah, domestic violence is one of those hidden things that we don't even really think about in our day-to-day practices. And it can be anyone, right? But it is the number one, it seems to be the number one source of cases of trauma or blunt force trauma, especially of injuries that we may see in a private practice setting. And we may not recognize that as veterinarians. It's so scary to think that this is going on and we might be seeing it and maybe not recognizing it. So when one is investigating criminal domestic abuse of pets, what kind of signs should we be on the lookout for? And, you know, specifically as veterinarians in general practice, what are we looking for in our patients? There's a number of things that can set your radar off where it could be that the person seems to have delayed bringing the animal in. And I think all veterinarians will have experienced that and not understanding why they waited so long. But part of the power dynamics and control that the abuser has over others in their family is withholding funds or preventing them from getting money, financial control, and prohibiting them from seeking medical care for the pet or for their animals. So that may be the delay and they may be sneaking in or they can seem paralyzed at making decisions on basic things, not expensive procedures necessarily. Um, And I think we've all seen that is like, where's that fear coming from? The clues can be in the history. Animals don't tend to live very long in these violent homes. They tend to not live past two years of age. Oh, gosh. Yeah, they because of the dynamics going on, they're they're using the animal as part of the power and control. So it seems to be The younger animals, right, because they're more aggravating, they can be more destructive. It seems to be smaller dogs can be more at risk, just tend to have more house soiling issues or barking and just tend to be more of a target. And there can be the jealousy that's going on there. So there can be the kind of animal and then the animal not living very long, or they have stories that they're always running away. The animal ran away. I'm not sure what happened or they died and we just got rid of the body. And this can be a history of that. And my practice, I saw also where the abuser, they would systematically 
kill the animals with accidental explanations that the human victim would take and not really, or maybe have an inclination, maybe something's wrong. So looking at patterns of deaths or injuries, repeated unexplained injuries, um, self-resolving neurologic signs, especially related to head, that could be related to head trauma can be because they get hit, right? or swellings. And we, it, it's not like every lameness that resolves can be it, but when you have this repetitive history, the biggest clue has come from Dr. Rob Reisman did his master's thesis on patterns of injury. And his group in New York City, they see all the animal cruelty cases of the five boroughs. So he was able to look retrospectively at all the different cases that were also domestic violence. And he actually found a pattern of injury, a fracture pattern. And it relates to what are the abusers doing? And I think veterinarians don't really wanna think about this anyways, no one wants to, but what could an abuser do to an animal in domestic violence? And it can range from withholding care, which I mentioned, it can be neglect, not feeding them, putting them outside in inclement conditions, abandonment, but it also, it can be sharp force trauma. It can be intentional giving them of drugs, illicit drugs or human drugs. And so it runs that gamut. But the number one thing they do is they throw them, they slam them, whether they grab them by their tail, their legs, and they're slamming them against the ground, the floor, the walls or objects. So there is this fracture pattern that he, he has found in its head, legs and ribs. And so rib fractures are actually uncommon to see even in accidental injury. You know, there's been enough studies out there about that. So rib fractures alone should maybe send up a warning sign, maybe to take a look, does it fit right with the accidental explanation? So a head injury can be skull fractures, or it can be eye trauma or some hemorrhage in the ears, broken teeth, something along with the head, legs and ribs. And the legs in the study you presented, it was femur was the number one, and there was one tibia. So again, not a common bone that we're seeing fractured in animals unless they're being, it might be a hit by car. But then when you have a hit by car, you have all these other patterns of injury that you should be looking for, right? You should have dirt and debris in the fur, abrasions, degloving injuries. So there was a study that was published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. Unfortunately, it was not in the veterinary literature and it was a retrospective study by Tufts University and the ASPCA's Bird Memorial Hospital. And they looked at a comparison of injuries found with motor vehicle accidents and cruelty cases, the non-accidental injury is the category meaning it was caused by the actions or lack of actions by a human. And so what they found was rib fractures were uncommon and hit by cars. And if they did occur, it was primarily one side and it was primarily the more fixed area of the rib cage. So it was the number one, it was in clusters. So it'd be like ribs one through four. And then second most common was four through seven and then uh, seven through 10 and 11 through 13. So bilateral rib fractures is a big warning sign you've got that it was not accidental. That's number one. And then if you find on radiographs evidence of healing fractures, their frequency comparison showed that it was 120 to one that that animal's being abused. If you've got oh older gosh. healing fractures. Yeah. I mean, I suppose that makes sense, but, oh, it's so hard to think about. Right. You don't think about it in your busy day. You got a, a, someone coming in, a colleague of mine 
had a famous well-known football player come in with the dog that had dislocated hip and a fractured femur, I think it was. Anyways, the dislocated hip, the femoral head was caudal. And they weren't thinking that that's not natural, that when the femoral head pops out in a dislocation, it should go dorsal cranial, right? Mm -hmm. And it was caudal, which means the attachments had to have been torn. So force had to have been applied. Busy day. There's, I don't know of any veterinary practice that's slow. <laughs> so you're just not thinking of like, this isn't, wait, that's not the normal place you would see in an accidental thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking with the femur, I, the rib fractures is really interesting because you're right. That's not something that I know that I've seen very commonly, but the femur is interesting too, because I would think in a lot of dogs to get enough force to break that femur, my thought would automatically go to hit by car. Exactly. But then you're going to look for, you should be looking for the other things, right? Right. So right. there should be, you may see frayed nails, like in cats, there should be some kind of dirt and debris in the fur. Sure. Depending on the size of the dog and, you know, the type of vehicle, whatever, but they get thrown, rolled over, tossed. So there should be something else. So if they're coming in with clean fur and nothing else, but, you know, the most common thing you see with hit by cars is actually pulmonary contusions, right? They get popped, okay. right? Yeah. It's not yeah. rib fractures. There's enough publications out there to know that really any rib fracture, you need to be sitting up going, wait, is it, is it true? Right. Sure, that non-accidental injury needs right. to be on a differential list. Especially the more flexible aspect of the thoracic area. So the bilateral rib fractures, which we see a lot in seven through thirteen, you know, thirteen, is just that's not a hit by car. You know? Sure. It's hard to fracture them even when we're if we're doing CPR, right? So you got to think about that. And so there's usually multiple things done to them. So those are big things to think about because we're we always want to try to figure out and we're always afraid to be wrong but we don't have to be absolutely right to have suspicion sure. right that something else is going on absolutely uh i hear you say you know you have to think about that and i go do i have to yeah but you're right but we do we all need to so we know kind of a little bit more about what to look for in our victims both human and animal how does this overall affect the victims of domestic violence? The animals being used as a pawn, right? And as a victim. And so they're suffering psychologically, emotionally from the terror, the unpredictable environment, let alone the pain and suffering through their injuries they may sustain. And again, some of these injuries don't result in anything, right? You wouldn't know they got kicked if there's no bruise. So there's that. And then the tremendous impact is on the human victim. The statistics show that those that are wanting to leave a domestic violence situation, if they don't have a place to take their pet, depending on the study is high between 40 to 65% say they will not leave at all, or they're going to delay leaving because they don't have a place to go with their pet. And that's a tremendous impact. It's keeping the animal and the humans at risk by having to stay in those situations. So there's multiple victims in these kind of situations. Sure. And, you know, all of this just being, being awful to think about that these types of things are out there and they're happening. And, you know, especially to think that they're potentially coming into our clinic or, or that they are coming into our clinic. So what's the call to action for our listeners? 
only 10% of domestic violence shelters have a program for pets. Not enough. That's it. Not enough. And so there's the call to action is for veterinarians, one, to become aware of what, what are those warning signs, not only in the animals, but also in the humans, what could be warning signs that there's something going on. The person that's in that situation is not telling their best friend, their coworkers, their family members that they're in an abusive relationship. And so you as a veterinarian may be the first time, first person one to bring it up, to recognize it and be have that conversation. So it's important for us to have the right words and to know what resources to offer the client in support, right? And that we've got an animal victim that we may, you know, we need to have protected. There's no black or white rules on this. It's it's nuanced because every situation is different. The person may also be altered on medication or other drugs because that's the way they're coping with the stress. So the call to action is for us to, as a veterinary community is to have that awareness. The, we know the statistics have not changed. One in three women and one in four men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. And that's in the United States. And the pandemic, it exploded. It, it became much worse. And then we have shut down practices, so we aren't even being able to see these nuanced indicators. So knowing those things, then we also need to know what's going on in our community. What are the domestic violence partnerships that you can create? Where's the shelters? Do they have a pet program? And if there's not one, to develop one. And, and that's, that's what I've been working with here in Texas and trying to develop a model after Ontario where they enlisted through the veterinary association, veterinarians to be the drop-off points, to be partners, to help with fostering those animals, to providing medical care. Sometimes they haven't been receiving even, even basic care, flea prevention, heartworm, food counseling, behavior training. So there's so much there that we can do. Purina has a big program for offering grants to shelters to develop pet programs. The federal government now has a grant program through the PAWS Act. So that's things that we, we need to do. There's a huge role for the veterinarians to play in legislative action. It's not even on our radar, right? We're just trying to get through the day or the week or the month with uh, family and life and our practice and our patients. But the biggest thing is veterinarians don't realize how big of a voice they actually have. Just as a single, only one veterinarian making a phone call or joining a legislative day to go speak to senators, your state senators, your representatives about legislation that can help with domestic violence and animal cruelty is tremendous. They're not used to hearing from very many of their constituents, let alone veterinary professionals. So we actually can make a difference. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Mark, this has been a, you know, sobering, but important reminder that we need to be on the lookout and a reminder that these things are out there. They're happening. We're seeing them and the importance of recognizing them. And then, like you said, taking actions to help improve the situation for everybody. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me. Any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? The only final thought is that one person can make a difference. Absolutely. I think a good reminder for all of us. 
I'm joined by Nicole Forsyth of Red Rover. Nicole, I'm so happy that you could join me today to talk about what is just a really important topic. Thank you. It's so great to, to be with you. So we're talking about domestic violence and you work for Red Rover. Can you tell us a little bit about Red Rover and what the organization does to protect pets and their owners from domestic violence? Yeah, so Red Rover is a national animal welfare organization, but we're really there to help when people and animals are in crisis together. So it could be a natural disaster, domestic violence. We're really, we want to keep people and pets together. So we're there when the, the human animal bond is most at risk. That's mostly what we're about. We have 4,000 volunteers all over the country that are also helping us with this mission. And we could not do the work without them. Oh, I'm so glad that there's, you know, so many people out there who are, are willing to help because that help is obviously needed in these really scary situations. For sure. So we're going to talk about some scary statistics for a moment. According to the ASPCA, 71% of pet owning women entering domestic violence shelters report their abuser threatened, harmed, or killed a family pet. And as many as 25% of domestic violence survivors reported returning to an abusive partner out of concern for their pet. Does Red Rover frequently see threats or actual abuse of pets as a common form of manipulation over domestic violence victims? Yeah, I mean, we've really read through a lot of the research in this area now, and from what we understand about domestic violence, it's really all about power and control. So unfortunately, the closer a survivor feels towards her pets, you know, the tighter that human animal bond, the more likely it is that that bond will be used to control the, the victim in the domestic violence um, relationship. So it's super important that survivors leave their abuser with their pets and that domestic violence shelters have programs to, to, to help the pets as well, just because we know this is really a huge part of a domestic violence situation. Gosh, Nicole, I have to say, I am so thankful that there's people like you out there who are, who are in this and and helping in these situations, because just talking about it in this short conversation, I know I'm finding very challenging, and this is probably something that you deal with very regularly. It is a really emotional thing. I think one of the things that makes it easy from, from my perspective or easier from my perspective, I should say, is that this is really a positive solution to a really horrible problem. And a lot of our donors and supporters and partners are really excited about the fact that we know being able to take your pet with you in a domestic violence situation is so important. And so we know that one of the barriers to that is domestic violence shelters not being pet friendly. So the fact that there's a clear solution that we can make domestic violence shelters pet friendly, and therefore we've just saved hundreds and hundreds of animals and people, removing a barrier, making it easier for survivors to leave, and then also helping the animals in these situations. So there's definitely a positive nature to this situation, and more and more is understood about the human-animal bond and the link between domestic violence and pets. And the more we learn, the more I feel like there's some solutions and programs to implement that can really help people and animals. Absolutely. Absolutely. What difference does it make for families to be able to bring their pets with them to a domestic violence shelter? 
For many, it really, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, one of the most powerful stories that we heard from a family was a woman who just assumed they would accept their pet. And so she showed up at the door of a domestic violence shelter with her kids and their dog princess, and they were turned away. Luckily, they had a place to take princess temporarily. So they were able to return to this domestic violence shelter, but the kids not having their dog with them through this really, really horrible transition and, and traumatic event in their lives was so devastating that they actually wrote a letter to the domestic violence shelter staff asking them if they could please have princess. So when the domestic violence staff read that letter, that's when they applied um, to Red Rover for a grant to become pet friendly. So Aww. it's, it's just, it makes, it means the world. Um, sometimes for people to have their pets with them. We also know that, you know, for recovering from trauma, oxytocin seems to play a role in helping mediate some of the overreactivity that happens from trauma. So just having your pets around could be an incredible tool to heal from the trauma of domestic violence. So that's another reason why they really should go with the pets if possible. Oh my goodness. Such a, such a difficult, such a a heartbreaking topic, but like you said, offering positive solutions to where, you know, obviously this is a horrible situation, but if we can make it a little bit better by allowing that pet to be there, maintaining that human animal bond or rather protecting that human animal bond. And like you said, you know, some of the physiologic things like the oxytocin to help that healing go a little bit easier on people. Of course, anything we can do to make that situation better. What can veterinary professionals do to help in these terrible situations? Yeah. So we know that a lot of clients walking into a practice, you know, maybe in an abusive relationship. So veterinary professionals could really help identify and provide resources to those people if they do come in. And we actually have a website called don'tforgetthepets.org that has a whole veterinary forum and resources that can help veterinary professionals set up screening, you know, learn how to identify when this um, person, a person, a client might be in an abusive relationship and, and what to do, like what kind of resources to give them. So we'd be, we'd love for more veterinarians to join our cause and help if they know that someone might be in one of these situations. Absolutely. Cause I think that is something that's really challenging as a veterinary professional, you know, you might suspect something, but there's so many questions, you know, am I, am I reading too much into this? What do I do? Who do I report it to? You know, at least in certain States, I know there it's a little bit different state to state, but having that resource, as far as you know, like, like we said, what to look for and what, you know, what to do in that situation, I think would be really helpful. Thank you for joining me and telling me about all of this. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? If others want to kind of learn more, you know, going to redrover.org, we have a lot of resources to help both domestic violence shelters become pet friendly, as well as survivors um, to leave in an emergency when they can't find other resources. Our website has a lot of different ways for people to get the help they need. And one more thing I would add, the veterinary professionals really shouldn't think of that they're alone in this effort in a community. I think one of the most amazing movements to happen over the last however many years it's been is the concept of one health and one welfare. You know, veterinarians and veterinary professionals, they see, you know, often if there's an animal welfare issue, there's usually a human welfare issue going on too. And so getting linked up to other organizations in their community can be really 
a, an incredible source of support, not only for information, for resources, but also their own mental health and just a feeling that you're not in this alone. So connecting with animal shelters, connecting with domestic violence shelters, connecting with other human health services can become a powerful way to just feel like you're not in this alone. So not only, you know, you as a helper are not alone, but also you can provide a better support network for the person coming to you, the clients, making sure they have access to all of the available resources for their needs, which is ultimately going to help the animal as well. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love that. Definitely. Well, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Thank you again, everyone, for listening to this special edition podcast from Betfolio and NAVC Embrace. I want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Merck and Nicole Forsyth for joining us and sharing their expertise on, you know, something that's such an important topic. As a community, we need your voice to be heard so that together we can make a difference. To learn more about this important issue, visit navc.com embrace. While you're there, you can become an advocate and support other important issues affecting human and animal health. Thanks again for listening, and as always, visit us on vetfolio.com for all of your veterinary education needs.